so long since I've been up here. I forgot how to turn this thing on. I forgot to put it on. <laughs> All right, patience. There we go. See what I have to go through every Sunday? There we go. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> We've just finished a series that John mentioned called Faith Expressing Itself Through Love. And if I were to choose a theme uh, for Central on a continual basis, I think that would be it. Faith expressing itself through love. Because that's really what we need to be about. Every lesson that we have, every relationship we have, class, sermon, event, whatever it may be, should be designed in our mind at least to encourage and build up one another's faith. And when I prepare lessons, that's really what I have in mind. I want to study and prepare and design these lessons as much as I design them in order to strengthen your faith, to encourage you. My goal isn't to touch your emotions, even though I'm sure sometimes our emotions are touched and that's not a bad thing. Uh, there's, there seems to be a trend in a lot of churches I think cultural trend to um, to have a feel good time, make sure our singing is the way it should be to to inspire you to feel something, to have a, a lesson that's preferably really, really short. <laughs> Obviously, you don't get that, <laughs> but a short lesson to just kind of touch your, your emotions and then then on your way you go feel uplifted. And there's, it's, it's okay, it's good to feel uplifted, there's nothing wrong with that. But my goal is to take a look at God's Word, take a look at the, the Bible, and explore it together. And I, I want to go with you where God is leading us, and not in, in a mystical way, in just a biblical way. See what the Bible says, and start following through that and working through the Scriptures together. Pull out its meaning. Of course, I'm, I'm aware of... Time constraints. I'm aware of when the building's too warm and you're not connected and you start going to sleep. And I know how to, to read your faces and I'll try to, to do better at that. But, you know, if you listen, if you listen, you will be encouraged. And it's not me. All right. It's not the person. I was encouraged by every person that came up here in the last few weeks. I was encouraged by Steve's lesson, his lesson on forgiveness. I was encouraged by Gary's lesson on being salt and light. I was encouraged on Jim's lesson last week, and I can't even remember what he talked about. <laughs> Whatever he talked about. <laughs> the closest one to me, I don't remember what it was. Okay. But, you know, I was encouraged by those things. And it's not the person, it's the message, the word, God's word. Because God's word is designed, is created by God to build up your faith, to give you something solid, to give you a foundation. In the worst of times when things are bad and, and life deals out bad things, if we are anchored in God's word and the true living Savior, that will be our foundation. And then we have applications to that faith as we grow and we learn we learn how to express our faith. It's not faith that just sits down and does nothing, but it's faith that expresses itself. And it expresses itself in what the Bible calls love. 
that word love. And we've defined that over and over as we study his word. And I believe we do this as we go into John and first John here. We find our faith growing as we study and listen to what John has to, uh, to say about the Christ. Our faith will grow. We will learn how to express that in love. We're coming up. If you'll read ahead just a few verses past into, into chapter two, that word love will come up and we'll learn what it means to express our faith in love. John, I think, does this very well. It was written near the end of his life, as I mentioned before. John is the last of the apostles. He saw the birth of the church. He saw its early struggles. He saw his growth. I'm certain that John, at this point in his life, has read many of Paul's letters. The letters were starting to be circulated around. He was living in Ephesus. There was one that actually went to Ephesus. So I'm sure he read many of Paul's letters. I, I, I feel certain that he read at least Mark's gospel, if not Luke's and Matthew's. Probably James, Jude, Peter's writings. And now he writes this short letter. This is almost a trap. And, and to me, it just sums up everything that's been written, really from Genesis onward. But it sums up the entire gospel. And it's in the simplest of languages. And yet it has a depth that belies its simplicity. A casual reading of the letter, if you go through it, It'll probably leave you with a few striking thoughts. But for the most part, you may find it unimpressive. That, that's my casual reading of, of the book of First John, the letter of First John. I read through it and there's these moments that's like, wow, that's neat. That's great. That's wonderful. But then it's like, well, he seems to be repeating himself a lot. A first or second grader can read this. But only when we think about it, ask questions, examine it in detail. Suddenly, there blazes from these words a glory that once lay hidden. This letter, as I've shared with you, has literally kept me awake at night. As I began to grasp it to a small degree, just a small degree. And so since we've been away from it for a while, I'm going to back up, catch us up a little, and then start where we left off in our last lesson. I want to begin by reminding us, and this is going to happen throughout as we look at First John. We have to remind ourselves over and over the three means or the three ways that help me understand what First John is all about. And I think it will help you uh, what, what it's all about. As, I, as you read through any commentaries, a lot of them base their, the, the meaning of First John based on what they call John combating Gnosticism. And I've mentioned it briefly in one of our first lessons, but I don't think that's his focus. I think John actually tells us what his focus is. And it begins by the first way to, to understand First John is to look at the three purposes of John. John actually states, I have three purposes. He doesn't say it like that, but he, he actually says, I wrote this because or for this reason. And this helped me understand what this letter uh, is about. Every time as I read through First John, as I study First John, I meditate on this. I constantly remind myself as I work through this book, what is, what are the purposes of this letter? If my understanding of the scripture comes in contact with the purpose, I assume that I'm missing the point. I correct myself. I go back to it. 
I bring myself back to these three purposes. So if you take notes, if you underline in your Bible, these are three good things to underline. These are three good things to remember as you read First John. This is what it's all about. First, he says in chapter one, verse four, I write this, that our joy may be full. If your understanding of first John doesn't create joy, doesn't grow joy, doesn't fill you with joy. Either you misunderstand what he's saying or you're resisting what he's saying. That would be the other possibility. But as you read this, sometimes he'll say some things that are so seemingly so harsh and stark that you say that uh, how can that be? How can that fill me with joy? That's a question you need to ask. What's going on here? Am I misunderstanding what he's saying or am I resisting what he's saying? And so to ask that question, does this increase my joy? And this word here where it says be uh, filled with joy to the full means to be overflowing. That's why he picked a picture of a glass of ice water overflowing. And he says, that's why I wrote this letter so that your joy will be filled full and overflowing. And then second, he says, I write, write this so that you will not sin. Chapter two, verse one. The good news, and as we look at the good news of Jesus, is so good, it's so wonderful, it's easy to twist it into meaning that you can sin and not be bothered by it. That you can sin and it's not devastating for the Christian. Paul was accused of that, and he answered the questions and questions to that accusation. John is saying, I'm not being soft on sin. The gospel is so wonderful. It's so, uh, so um, cleansing that you can walk into it and say, well, if I walk in the light as he is in the light, I have fellowship with God. The blood of Jesus continually cleanses in me of my sin. If the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing in me of my sins, it doesn't matter what I do. And John says, no, I'm writing this so you will not sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you think John or I am being soft on sin, you misunderstand John. You misunderstand what I'm saying. Part of our problem is we misunderstand happiness and joy. We misunderstand. We think that because sin will bring you temporary happiness or a feeling of happiness, it will never bring you joy. You'll never have joy as you involve yourself in sin. And so he says, I write this so that you will not sin. Third, he wrote it so that you can know that you have eternal life. Chapter five, verse 13. How can can a person be saved and not be sure that they're saved? Yes. I think a lot of people go through their Christian life unsure of their relationship with God, their salvation. Some may even think, well, you're being presumptuous to say you're you're sure of your salvation. And yet John states this over and over. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. When John wrote this, he says, I'm writing this. And he's writing this at the end. The end looking back at what he's written, he said, now I've written this to you so that you can know something. I want you to know that you have eternal life. Listen to this. We know that we have come to know him. Chapter two, verse three. 
This is how we know we are in him. Chapter two, verse five. Thirty seven times in five chapters, he says, no, no, no. And so I'm not a math whiz, but I counted up the verses in John. I think there's one hundred and four divided it by thirty seven. And it comes out to almost one, it comes in one one time every three, three verses. John says on an average. No, I'm writing this so that you will know something. Do you think it's important? That we know something or that John thinks that you need to know something? Of course. Which brings me my second to my second way or second by uh, means by which I have come to understand this letter of John. The gospel is God centered, not man centered. And the more I think about this, the more I think the gospel is more God centered than I realize. And I think it's more God centered than I can realize. But I'm beginning to. Finally, get this into my mind. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of my salvation is God centered, God focused from beginning to end. The good news of salvation centers around what God did and what he continues to do. Another way of saying that is my initial salvation, my entry into God's kingdom is God's work. And most people have grasped that part. Because when you became a Christian, and some of you became a Christian very, uh, just not too long ago, and you know this, you came to God, not telling him what you have for him, but you needed something from God. You came to him saying, I have nothing to offer you. And so you understand in the initial salvation, I have nothing to offer God. This is God's work. His salvation is his work. But staying in that saved relationship. Living out that saved relationship is, again, centered in God. I think we mess up, and this is all our tendency to do this, when we make our efforts the center of our walk with God instead of his continued work in our life being the center, being the crux of our walk. Think about each of the three purposes that we talked about. Each one is thwarted. And to some degree becomes ineffective, powerless, when I center on myself and not God. What we do, what we do is essential. You do some stuff, okay? But what I do must be centered and focused on what God is doing in my life rather than what I am doing. Let me try and illustrate this a little I lose joy when I focus on my work. Just think about this. Whatever work that is, whatever I'm doing for God, whatever counseling, Bible teaching, sermon delivery. When I focus on what I'm doing, I lose joy because I'm sitting here looking at you thinking some people here aren't listening to me right now. Some people don't like what I'm saying. Some people wish Steve was here instead of me. If I focus on me, I lose joy. Okay? Instead of focusing on what God is saying, what God is doing. I'm not sure of my salvation when I focus on how well I'm doing. When I focus on how well I did this past week, when I look at what I've done and what I've not done in God's work, I'm not sure God could love me. 
that God could save me because of the things that I did and didn't do this past week. Ironically, I even sin when I try very hard not to sin. Think about that. Come on. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. Some of you may not. But when I try really, really hard not to do something or really, really hard to do something that I should be doing, I mess up. Paul described this in in Romans chapter 7. I was going to read it, but I'm not going to. And he goes through this whole thing. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. And just read chapter 7 of Romans about verse 14 onward. And you'll see that struggle of when I focus on myself. You see, I sin not when I stop trying not to sin. But... When I lose focus on Christ and how he's living in my life, when I stop looking to him, when I stop believing that he's actually in me, that's when I sin. All right. We're sitting at a restaurant. We got the bill. And you've done this before. And I know not everyone's done this. And some of you have done this. And you know that you can sneak out without paying the bill. All right. It's a silly illustration for most of us. We don't want to get caught doing this. But let's say you've done that. Let's say you're tempted to do that. You really need the $15 that you're going to spend on that meal and you're tempted to sneak, just leave because the door's open. You can take off. You're never going to come back here again. You're by yourself, so you do it. But supposing one of the elders is having lunch with you or me. And you see the opportunity and you say, uh, hey, Chip, let's take off. Let's, Ed, we, we can get out of here without pain. Would you do that? Would, I don't think so. <laughs> Some of you are looking like you would. <laughs> Maybe you do it with me. <laughs> of course not. Here's the problem. When you're sitting there tempted to leave, you don't believe at that moment that Jesus is actually in you living with you. You don't believe it. You don't believe it. And so you take off. And whatever the sin is, when you yell at someone, when you shouldn't yell at it, for that moment, you are saying, God, you're not here. Because if Jesus was sitting right there in that chair, you would never have treated that person that way. That's your problem. That's my problem. And so we focus so hard, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry. And then my two-year-old grandchild takes my expensive maple syrup and pours it all into the pancakes yesterday. (laughs) I was in charge, Julia went out, I tell Tui, go back there, have a, get a bite of pancake. He comes out and says, I wipe my hands. Prince of maple syrup filled to the brim in two plates. I had to work really hard <laughs> not to be angry. But, you know, if Jesus had been sitting there laughing, what would I have done? I would have. But, you know, I was like, Tom, I'm sorry, big dog. I know you are. <laughs> he saw I was a little upset. But, you know, that's our problem. We forget momentarily that Jesus is actually with us. 
And so we concentrate so much on the sin. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not. And you do it because you forget who is there with you. You take your eyes. On, see what I mean by God-centered? We take our eyes off him and how well I'm doing and how hard I'm trying and how good I've done for six hours or four days. Or 40 days or whatever it is. How good I've done that. Then we mess up. Take your eyes off what you're doing. Put your eyes on what he's doing. The center and focus of my life is on who Christ is, what he's done. The fact he's living in me, I in him. Joy becomes natural. Sinning is not sinning, is accomplished. And I know he'll keep me safe because I'm looking at him. That's counterculture. That's counter-religion. Every religion teaches the opposite of this. Every religion teaches what you do to, to get into God's grace. This is counter-ego. Because I want to do it. I want to be the one to do this. The third thing that helps me understand First John. First is those three purposes. The second one is this is all God-centered, not man-centered. And the third is that John's writing is circular, not linear. I'll explain that. We'll, we'll see this over and over. The way most of us think in the Western world, we think in a straight line. We think linear. We're, we're taught in high school, junior high maybe, how to do an outline. Maybe you're not anymore, but we used to be taught that way. You have major point one. You have a sub point A, a sub point B, major point two. The sub points under those points, you know, that's linear thinking where he's saying, here's my point. And so because of this, therefore, and I illustrate it, and then therefore this, and then therefore this, and it's just right down the line. That's how we think. That's how Paul writes his letters. But John doesn't write his letters like that. He, is, he states the truth, and then he comes back and he, he expands on it. And the best I could do is this, this water illustration. The ripples just go out. He develops his thought. In fact, the word therefore is not even in First John. He never, ever says, therefore, this. And some of you who have fast smartphones just look and say, oh, in First John chapter 4, verse 5, it says, therefore. Yeah, the NIV and a couple of other ones. But that word doesn't actually mean therefore. It means this is why. And it's not even talking about a logical progression, even if you add that one in there. John thinks he makes a statement and he expands. And then he expands upon that. Instead of that linear thinking. So that brings me to where we left off. Let's read verse 7 of chapter 2. Where he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. Which you have heard since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. And he's beginning his expansion here. In, the, in our last lesson, I'm just going to briefly go through this because it's important. He, he does his first expansion. Where in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my dear children. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, dear friends. This is an expansion. In English, the nuance isn't there. You can't see it. It's not apparent. But in the Greek language, it is. I explained last week that he is saying here in the first one, my dear children. This is. A nursery term for little children. 
It's like saying Mandy instead of Amanda. It's like saying Ralphie instead of Raphael. All right. And when he's addressing sin, this is the first time he comes to sin. He uses this this term. It's called the diminutive. Instead of a formal and harsh tone. It's not Gerald. I'm writing this so that you will not sin. The tone is this. Oh, Jerry. I'm writing this so you won't sin. It's using those that 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 uh, nursery term. Whatever maybe your mother. I'm almost embarrassed. My parents aren't here. You don't tease me. OK. My nickname. It's special, but it's, you know, you got to start doing this to me. Addie. All right. Alan, Addie, Addie. Yeah. (laughs) What? I'm sorry. It's not Alan. It's Addie. That's the diminutive of my name. That's the, the, yeah, baby talk. Addie. Addie, I'm writing this so that you don't, so that you won't sin. You see what I'm saying? The tone of that is compassion. The tone of that is endearing. So it's not my dear children formally, but it's, it's this tender Tommy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, those, it's instead of Judas, it's Juju. <laughs> I'm writing this so that you won't sin. And then he expands that to this word we have here, dear friends. And that word dear friends there doesn't mean like we hear it, my good friend. It's a word that's related to love, and it means loved by God, dearly loved. It means loved as an only child, especially beloved. And you may say, well, Jesus is called the beloved son. I'm not the beloved son. Matthew 3, 17 says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. That's not talking about me. You see, you got on to me again. You're man-centered. Where are you? You are in Christ. Christ is in you. If you're in Christ, you are the beloved. You are loved by God. And so here he expands this and says, my beloved one, my especially loved one by God. Julie gave me this this, uh, phrase, you're my favorite. Because this word was used of only children. Only child is the shares love with no one else. And God, because he is everywhere at all times, can love you, especially as an only child. And then we go to this, my second expansion. Let's read this again where he says, I'm I'm, I'm, uh, talking about a new command. Um, I'm writing a new new command, but I'm sorry. I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is a message you have heard. This is an expansion. We're going to see this together. Uh, He says first here, you have had from the beginning. That's a repeated action in the past. This is a command that was stated in the past and it was repeated over and over. This is something you heard over and over and over. Probably you're saying, well, what is it? We're going to find out what that is in a moment. It's not new to you. 
If you're a Christian, this is not a new command. This is old. It's as old as you are a Christian. I'm not writing you a new command. I'm not writing you something brand new. That's what that word new means. I'm not writing you something you've not seen before. It's not new when John wrote this. He's not. He's saying, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. I'm telling you something you know. In fact, from the beginning of your walk with God, this has been the theme and the direction of your life. This is as old as you are in Christ. And he tells you what it is. This this old command, this old command is uh, you've had from the beginning is the message you have heard. All right. This is something you've had from the beginning. The old command is the message that you have heard. Now, think with me. Where, do you, where have you ever heard that, the message, in 1 John? Well, I backed right back to verse 5, right? And I thought, well, that must be it, right? He says here, um, verse 5, this is the message we have heard and declared to you. So I said, oh, he's expanding on verse 5, but then I got into it a little more. And I realized that's a whole different word. I won't go into any details on that. Some of your translations will say, this is the word you have heard. And that's more accurate. It comes from that little word logos that we've shared before. It's a word we've examined in the Gospel of John. We've looked at it here where it says in the beginning was the word. John chapter one, verse one. And the word was with God. The word was God. The logos was with God. The logos was God. That's what he's talking about. The logos you heard. So this connects not back to chapter one, verse five, but all the way back to chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning, which you have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which you've looked on. Our hands have touched. What's he talking about here? A person we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is what he's beginning to expand on. What you have heard is wrapped up in a person, the person of Christ. What was proclaimed from the beginning is the old command that you had from the beginning is the person of Jesus. Some say, well, this logos, this word is the doctrine or the teaching you've received. And I beg to differ. The message you heard wasn't a new set of rules. There wasn't the old there was wasn't the old covenant with this old law and regulations and then the new covenant came along with new laws and new revelation and new regulations. And yet a lot of people believe this. A lot of people think that's what we've done. We've come into the new kingdom with our new rules, our new regulations. Once you were taught, keep the Sabbath. That's in the law, right? Now what we're taught, keep Sunday. That's the new law. Once you brought a lamb, you sacrificed the lamb to purify yourself. That's the old law. Now, you're told, go to church regularly. Take the Lord's Supper. Then you're purified to next Sunday. We never say those words exactly like that, but that's what we, what we indicate, don't we? Am I the only one that grew up believing that? That when I came to church, I got a new lease on life? A new set of rules? Our problem is this, the cry of our flesh is to know the list of rules. Just tell me what I need to do to be right with God. Tell me what I need to do to stay right with God. Give me the list. Give me the list, God. When I get the list, what am I? I'm man-centered. 
I'm me-centered. Tell me what to do. Give me the list, God. Just tell me what to do. But the call of the Spirit is this. To know in whom you have believed and to be convinced that He is able to keep or guard you. What you have entrusted to Him. It's our next slide. I just quoted from 2 Peter chapter 1. The call of the Spirit to know in whom you have believed and be convinced that salvation and be convinced that what he is able to keep you, to guard you, what you've entrusted to him. What have you entrusted God? What have you entrusted Jesus? I don't know about you, but I've entrusted myself to him because I have nothing to give to him. I'm just saying, Lord, if I have any chance at all for salvation, I have any hope is rest in what you've done and not what I've done. I entrust that to you. I trust myself to you. And he says he is able to keep you, to guard you. The new law leads me to ask, how many times do I need to go to church? When and how do I do certain things? How do I do certain things in certain ways to be right with God? I begin to ask the question, did I do something inadvertently wrong? Is God going to condemn me for sinning because of something I didn't do or I did do the wrong way or didn't do the right way? How many times do I have to commit a particular sin before I'm lost? Once? Ah, God's blood and cleansed once. Twice? Ten times? hundred times? I know people have been Christians 50 years and they're still struggling with the same sin they started with. Not to the same degree, but they're still struggling with it. Are you saved or are you lost? If you're a man-centered gospel, you're... It's all about you. My inconsistency, my sins, my faults, and I'm going to die with sin because I'll never be totally... Perfect in my sight. I am totally perfect in God's sight. God perfects me. God keeps me. God I entrust myself to God who saves me. And that's the point that he's saying here. Am I, am I focused on a gospel that is me-centered or God-centered? How well do I need to obey? We read things about obedience here. We do, and, and we, we talked about obedience, and we need to obey. Yes. But how, how good is your obedience? Do you, do you obey God 100% of the time? So if you obey 90% of the time, you're okay? 80%? I mean, a man-centered gospel begins to focus on what I have to do, how many times I have to do things. But this old command, which we've had from the day of our spiritual birth, is wrapped up in a person. And our relationship with him. And this is what he's reminding us of. The command that we've had from the beginning is a, is a relationship based in love. God's love extended to you. A saving relationship in which you are called God's beloved. You are God's favorite. You are God's special child. And we have our time believing that. Because it's such good news. The good news of Jesus is so good that we just say... It can't be that good. And it really is. 
Next lesson, we're going to begin to examine some stuff you already know. You know these things. You can read ahead. That's fine. You've had it from the day of your birth and new birth. John's going to state this positively. He's going to say it negatively. It's something you know, but it's something you need to be reminded of. It's something we need to grow in and mature in. Let me read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 in my expanded version, my paraphrase. That may help us. Where he says, starting chapter 2, verse 1, My dear little ones, if I was reading it to you personally, I'd use your, your special word. My dear little ones, I'm putting this down in black and white for this, for this express purpose, so that you will not sin. Not even once. But if anyone does sin, and certainly that will happen, we have an advocate, one who speaks face to face with the Father, declaring our innocence. He's our complete defender against Satan. Jesus, the man appointed by God, righteous. He's the one through whom the wrath of God is satisfied, propitiation, sins paid in full. Not only are our sins taken care of, but for anyone else in the whole world who desires it. And this is how we experience a daily, continuous and growing knowledge that we actually have come to know him and we still know him. We treasure, we value, hold in the highest esteem his commands, which leads to obedience. A person who says, I really know God yet does not value and guard and hold tight his commands, lives an illusionary life, and is in fact a liar. God's truth, what is really real, is not part of his life. But those who continually treasure and guard and hold to his word, his instructions, his perfect law, and those people, God's love meets its goal and purpose, that of obtaining maturity and completeness in him. Oh, dear special ones. Loved by God. I am not writing something brand new, some command you've never heard before. But what I am saying is as old as from the day of your new birth. This command is the Logos, which you heard and which took effect in your life. I hope you've been encouraged today. I hope your faith has been stimulated a little. I hope those of you who are outside Christ can see the value of being in him. That your sins, are, in fact, are washed away and you live a perfect, forgiven life in Christ. Because that's where your faith is. is on his saving work and not yours. If we can help anyone in a public way, we'll ask you to come as we stand in the next sing.